1: Welcome back to Culture Calculus. I'm Kavitha Davidson from The Athletic, joined by my co-host Jason Jones. And we are very thrilled to welcome Michael Harriet, a senior writer for The Root and author of the upcoming book Black AF History. I think we can say black as fuck history on the show. The Unwhitewashed Story of America. All right. Well, Michael, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Where are you joining us from?
0: Birmingham, Alabama.
1: Wow. Now, is that where you grew up?
0: No, I grew up in South Carolina. I moved here about 10 years ago, so I've been here since.
1: Okay. And uh, if you grew up in South Carolina, are you a South Carolina sports fan?
0: Uh, well, I was until I, I attended college at Auburn, so hmm. I am a oh. Auburn fan and... Acolyte
2: and supporter and everything. <laughs> and how did you end up in Birmingham, of all places?
0: Well, so I was actually covering the buildup. So it's funny that my my background is actually in economics. Mm-hmm. So back when the Washington, well, the when Newsweek was actually owned by the Washington Post, I covered the... 08 Olympics, the build up for the 08 Olympics in China. I, uh, you know, studied international uh, economics in uh, and covered the build up for the 08 Olympics, and because I just happened to take like three years of Chinese in college, Uh, so after that I moved back to the U S and covered took a short term assignment to cover this uh Senator that they thought would probably lose uh named Barack Obama.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and,
1: uh, uh, we, we might've heard of him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You might, he kind of got around, but
1: I kind of have that, the, uh, I don't know if you can see, but I kind of have the New Yorker cover right. With the O on, on my wall.
0: <laughs> and so, uh, after that, I, uh, I realized I could live anywhere and just chose. I wasn't going to move out of the South because I can't deal with the cold. So I just chose Birmingham kind of out of a hat and moved here.
1: Now, I know you also you went to uh, grad school at Florida State. Um, I, I have a lot of very good friends who went to FSU. Do you have thoughts on the recent, uh, I guess, the rejuvenation of the whole Seminoles debate that I think we're talking about now in the context of the Braves and the CHOP? Well, I think
0: with the Braves, it's different because Florida State kind of works with the actual Seminole tribe in uh, in Florida, and they gave them permission, and the guy that's riding the horse Uh, Is an actual Seminole So I think there's a difference between Then There's there's an actual tribe Of people called Seminoles Versus Braves Who was You know a a word that was created Because they fought against white people For taking Their stuff Uh, I think there's a difference and then the the Whole tomahawk chop thing Is like a white myth that was Created to enable the genocide of Native Americans for the, you know, the Indian Removal Act. So I think there's a, there are two different discussions, but uh, I think the, what the Braves are doing, you know, the Native Americans say it's racist. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, usually when a marginalized group say they're offended by something, I usually take their side because I don't know who would know better than them. And so I think the, the, Florida state thing. I am a, I was a Florida state fan before I went to college, you know? Um, and then, you know, of course the whole Charlie Ward, uh, Mm. thing. So yes. Yeah. So yeah, I am, I I do follow Florida state football.
1: I am, I am a a born and raised Knicks fan. So I remember that Charlie Ward thing. Well,
0: (laughs) yeah, I always think that's crazy when I remember it, that they said he couldn't play football in the mm-hmm. NFL because he wasn't tall enough. Mm-hmm. So he went and played in the so NBA. He went to the NBA. <laughs> and played for where, a decade.
2: Where short people thrive, you know. Yeah. And I remember that tweet and I remember some of the replies to it. There were a lot of justifications of, well, you realize they didn't run an offense for him back then. And he w- it, it was just funny seeing people jump in to try to be like, well, there's a reason why the Heisman trophy winning quarterback did not get a shot in the NFL. And we've seen (laughs) since Charlie Ward, Heisman quarterbacks who were far less talented at the quarterback position get chances. Yeah, yeah. It's funny
0: that, you know, there's what, 12 teams now with black starting quarterbacks, Mm -hmm. Uh, 11 quarterbacks started this weekend in the NFL. And uh, so it's funny now that that whole Debate has kind of gone away now that they gave black quarterbacks the chance. And now that they, they see, you know, what black, black quarterbacks can do. And we knew it was a farce the whole time. The, the leading candidates for MVP this year, you think about it, are who uh, Lamar Jackson, uh, who else? Uh, probably Dak Prescott, even though he, his team won yesterday without, a, uh, without him starting. Uh, you know, the leading candidate, when you think about uh, Arizona. Arizona Mm -hmm. Cardinals. Uh, So, like, the whole debate has just gone away, and we don't even think about it anymore.
1: Well, some some of us remember when Bill Polian didn't think Lamar Jackson was a quarterback. So, (laughs) (laughs) some of us remember when he said that dude was a wide receiver.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but he was. To be fair, he was high on opiates.
1: Uh, (laughs) Fair fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, but we wouldn't call him out for that if uh like like we would a player for for smoking some pot, right? Right. Uh well Michael, you know, I feel like we're we have conversations in sports so much about revisionist history and forgetting our history. And, you know, when Hank Aaron died, for example, there were a lot of sports writers who came out and waxed poetic about what Henry meant to the culture, to the country, and kind of tried to you know, they kind of tried to frame it a little bit like, you know, when he was, he was, he was such a statesman in the face of adver- adversity, and absolutely he was, but Henry also kept the letters, you know, <laughs> like yeah. it, Henry, Henry remembered everything that was said towards him, and he remembered that history. Do you see any parallels, and we'll, we'll get way deeper into this in your work, but do you see any parallels to the way that we kind of like whitewash or romanticize our sports history and the way that we do that with our country's history?
0: Yeah, there's obviously a, a, a correlation when you think about, you know, we, the, the same fire that fueled uh, like Tom Brady, for instance, for getting picked so late in the draft this is the fire that fueled Hank Aaron. And he was never shy about talking about it. Right. Mm-hmm. He wasn't really like we like to think of those things as radical but he wasn't radical It was just a thing that existed and he overcame it and they never talk about they say you know he persevered but they'd never talk about what he had to overcome or what he had to persevere and and I think that is important because we look back at Hank Aaron and the history of baseball you know we we they we never talk about the first hundred years. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And then, you know, even when we talk about the color line, when we do, right. We don't talk about, we, we pretend as if, well, black players, you know, weren't allowed to play until Jackie Robinson, when black players were playing Mm -hmm. and they were doing so well that the white owners said, Hey, we, we, we don't want black players to play," And they excluded blacks from playing baseball after they started playing baseball, uh, so so that's the part that we don't talk about, and that's the same thing we do with American history because we like to have this romanticized notion of our history where nobody's at fault and everything was hunky dory all along.
2: Yeah, like that reminds me of something you wrote about uh, Condoleezza Rice <laughs> and her talking about what? Why are we teaching things like you know critical race theory? Because all it does is make uh, white kids feel bad about being white. And you raised the point, well, maybe people should feel bad about <laughs> some things in American history. Just what do you think when you hear people say, you know, people shouldn't be angry, and then when someone like Hank Aaron or Henry Aaron does pass, people forget they were angry. Bill Russell was angry. <laughs> Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was not just walking around happy going through some of the things they went through. And just what do you, just, what do you think when you see these, these narratives become, well, he just, you know, there were some things that happened back in those days, but he persevered and played.
0: Right. It's, it's, it's the same thing, right? Even when you think about Bill Russell and all of those players, they were angry at the situation, not just the situation in America, but the situation in their sports. And, and, and there's obviously a great correlation because, feeling bad what we call feeling bad we we're afraid of making white people feel bad that's what causes change right like for so long when you talk about the civil rights movement what what caused it right when television stations and news stations started showing the march across the edmund pettus bridge when we got to saw see what People, how people in the South were treated, that's what sparked the change. And, that, and that you could say it even when it doesn't come to racial issues, right? Like when it comes to, you know, when we found out that the ozone layer was disappearing and the plant was probably going to die or get swept away by oceans or tornadoes or hurricanes or fires in a couple of years, we started feeling bad. And so we started making changes and addressing climate change. And it's, it's like that with everything. You you don't, I feel bad when I have a flat tire, which is what makes me get out and change the tire. That's how <laughs> things work in the universe where we face the truth.
2: And I think in the last year, especially a lot of the athletes I've dealt with, a lot of them, especially the younger ones, they're 19, 20, kind of had an awakening during the pandemic and seeing, wow. There's a whole lot of shit I had no idea about. And actually one of the guys I know, Tyrese Halliburton, he sent me one of your Twitter threads and he said, one of your threads actually got him to look into things that he never know. He never knew about no Tulsa, Oklahoma. He didn't know all of these things. And he said, just seeing your threads said, okay, well maybe I should look beyond just what I was told at school or in a lot of cases wasn't told at all. Just how do we continue to, you know, keep the conversation going and not make it a thing where if I never heard about it, it's okay.
0: Like when you think about that, how interesting that is, when you think about someone who is a professional athlete, they live in this kind of space where for most of their life, they have this certain amount of privilege that shields them from the realities of a lot of things, but they still face racism, right? Even, like, being the most talented person in your town and in your state and at your school still doesn't shield you from that reality.
1: And, you don't and stop being a black man just because you step onto an NBA regulation court. Like,
0: right. Right. And then you think about your kid, even if somebody like LeBron, for instance, right. LeBron is rich and he's famous. And when he goes home, he still knows that what, if my kids are out, they are still threatening to some people, right? Even if they recognize me, they, they might not recognize my kids. And so you live in this kind of dual universe where you get to see America at its worst, where you still have the promise that America offers to a lot of people. And, and it's interesting to, to see how professional athletes and how the sports world reckons with that dichotomy.
1: Do you think that dichotomy, I mean, we've had athlete activists since as long as we've had athletes. And you know, I've always said like sports have been political as long as we've had sports. Like, and people use the word political, I think, to a point where the word has become meaningless because everything is political to people. But do you think that that dichotomy that you just described, that, that professional athletes at a certain level when they come from a marginalized group whether they're black or women or gay you know they do as you said see the worst that this country can be toward those groups but they also have seen how this country can fulfill some of its promises so do you think that dichotomy motivates some of these athletes to fight for that change because they see, you know, I'm always saying I write very critically about sports, not because I hate sports, because I love them, because I want them to be as good as they can be. So do you think that athletes or just people around us, like Americans in general, can be motivated by that kind of dichotomy that we see around us? I think
0: they can because when you think about sports, right, uh, it's such a pure encapsulation of the human condition, right? Like, you know, and that's one thing about being an athlete in general, because you have to have the mindset that if I work hard, if I follow the rules, then the rest of what I do or the rest of my goals will take care of themselves. Right. right? And kind of being black in America kind of destroys that notion, right? You can work hard, you can follow the rules, And there are still some things that you cannot avoid and some of your future and some of your goals are still not in your grasp just because of the color of your skin. And I think when we look at sports, we can see ourselves reflected in it because the people who are successful in sports and in most sports don't look like the people who are successful in life. But, you know, we still love to point at them and say, well, look. If this poor guy from the rough streets of, you know, Omaha, Nebraska can work hard and make something of himself and not get in any trouble, then you can, too, when the reality is that's not always the case. You know, we see those examples, but we also see the examples of people who, you know, like, you know, imagine what could have happened to Allen Iverson. Because of a, he was in a bowling alley. Mm-hmm. And it's a crazy story to think that Alan Iverson went to jail because he was in a bowling alley and got in a fight. And that's something that happens to a lot of high schoolers, right? And he was not exempt, even though he was the most talented person in his area. Just because, and they wouldn't have, I mean, you know, I hate to use that trope of if he was white, that wouldn't have happened to him. But if he was the most talented white kid, that wouldn't have happened to him, you know, because they, there is a difference in how some people inherently view, especially, you know, we think of Allen Iverson as, as small, but he's still like a, almost six feet tall in high school (laughs) and athletic and strong. And there's a way that people view people like that. Right. Right. And, and that comes to that. He has to carry that aside from when he's on the court, all the other 24 hours a day.
2: I'm just laughing because I've been around Iverson and I'm about six too. So I look, I don't look at Allen as threatening, but the idea that someone could see a 17 year old Allen Iverson might have weighed 150 probably at that point and be afraid of him just almost it just it cracks me up but it's just also sad because it's true that the fact you know his skin off you know just off the bat you know his skin and his clothing to people that scared people even when he was in the NBA that's yeah
0: right like like what we see now in the NBA is different from what we saw what we, what we saw when Allen Iverson came in, he was looked at as a rebel. He had all these tattoos and wore jewelry. And people thought that was crazy. And there was nothing inherently different from him than the rest of the people who were playing in the NBA. It just looked different. So they had a different idea of who he was.
1: You know, when you talk about like how it's good to feel bad, like change only happens when people feel bad about how shit is. Um, you know, we've we've got a version of that in sports, right? It's called stick to sports. Like, I just want sports to be my entertainment. I just want sports to be my escapism. Why are you reminding us about all of this terrible shit that happens in the world when I just want to watch two teams play? And I do understand that desire. I wish I could do that. Like, I think it's such a privilege to be able to watch sports without thinking about all the other stuff. Um, But like, what would you say to people and, I, and you can apply this outside of sports, but like, what is the line between that kind of productive, like, I feel bad about the way things are, so I'm going to work to change it and like empty or meaningless, like white guilt? Like, how do we draw that line? Do you know what I mean?
0: Well, I think I think the difference is, like, you know, if we're going back to sports, right, there are a lot of people who point at athletes like, for instance, Colin Kaepernick and, and say Well, you know You're rich, why do you care uh, or, or, you know you're, you're talking about These problems that Of the underprivileged when It's obvious that you don't face these problems Which is always weird to me Because I don't understand How somebody, like I guess that's how They think, like as long as It's not me
2: Then I don't have to care about
1: I don't care about other other people. people. Yeah.
2: Or that money can somehow absolve you of feeling anything, you know, like, well, you're rich. So no, they're going to let you go anyway.
0: Right. But when you look at the country you live in, it is a privilege to be able to segment and partition off your life and say that I can concentrate on this thing because You know, it doesn't bother me is, you know, people not learning, you know, kids in school not learning the history of America, for instance. I shouldn't be concerned with that because I don't have kids. Right. Or, you know, uh, I can teach my kids at home. And the reality is, right, is that what they're talking about is preserving the status quo to benefit whiteness, right? Because if you don't fight to change those things, you are not just preserving what benefits you, but you are also denying, though, the stuff that you benefited from, from other people, right? You're, des- you're denying people who you may not even know the right to, for instance, vote, or just because you live in New York and you can vote, uh, you don't worry about what happens in Georgia. But those people in Georgia are still oppressed. Their, their right to vote is still oppressed. And not only that, right, it affects you in that. You don't live in a democracy. You can't say that you live in a, in a democracy. You can't say that you live in a country that offers liberty and justice for all if you are not working for the, for all part.
2: That's why this world series to me was kind of an interesting one. you've got the Georgia laws against the Texas laws, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and when you just look at Texas, whether it's, you know, the redistricting thing, then the, uh, the abortion laws, just what do you think when you look at a, t- a state like Texas, where a lot of people of color are moving there, you know, it's, <laughs> i have a lot of friends who have moved to texas but then you look at some of these laws and what's going on it's almost like it's amazing that 2021 some of this thing that's still happening to a lot of people it's the attitude like you said i don't live in texas so why does it matter to me
0: yeah and those, are, those aren't two separate things right right that redistricting is happening because so many people Mm. of color are moving to texas right those those voter suppression laws are an attempt at preserving the white rule of the state and it's been happening since texas joined the union right um and so and so you know it's while it's easy to separate those things it's it's not really though because When you live in a state like Texas that is so conservative and then you wonder why, for instance, the poverty rate is so high. Well, because they want to keep they want white people to keep the money and the property that they have by not paying taxes and those lack of tax resources can't be put into social programs, they can't be put into neighborhoods and that's why the schools are so poor and that's why there's a difference in the education between poor communities. And and it all goes back to living in one community and expanding that idea out to offer that promise to all people.
1: The NAACP recently sent an open letter to pending free agents athletes who would be free agents. And basically, you know, CEO and President Mr. Derek Johnson said, please don't sign in Texas if you can afford not to do that, right? In protest of some of these laws and, and all of that. What did you make of that, of that call? Is that effective? Would you blame an athlete for signing in Texas? Like, how do you, how do you kind of put all of these things together?
0: I don't blame an athlete for not st- for signing in Texas, right? But I think it would be cool if athletes, let's say you were a free agent and, you know, it was between you and the Cowboys, between the the Giants and the Cowboys, and, you know, you ultimately chose the Giants. It would be just cool just to say, hey, look, they, they're racist down there. Because, you know, one thing that white folks One little area of American society where white folks love black folks is is on the football field, on Mm -hmm. the basketball court. Mm -hmm. And to have that kind of impact. Right. Even if it's not real, even if you just say it will make white folks think. And I think it will still have some it will actually have some impact because, you know, all of this conversation You know, you even if you got all the money in the world, you don't want to live in a place that's racist. Mm -hmm. You don't want to live in a place where you know people like you are looked down upon and where you know your aunts and your uncles and the rest of the people in your entourage, they're going to be targeted by the white majority. So I think it's an effective idea. I think it's an idea that we should expand to. Like if I had a son who was a D1 athlete, I would, you know, encourage him not to sign in one of those states. And if I was like a multi-millionaire or a billionaire, now that D1 athletes can get endorsements, I would be encouraging kids to sign at HBCUs or and say, look, if you sign at this HBCU, just imagine if the top athletes went to one of the two predominantly black mm-hmm. hot conferences and all of the athletes there got endorsements. It would like, there would be a radical shift in the sports landscape. And a lot of those schools would end up with a lot of money because if all the best athletes were at, you know, 20 schools, the, the, not just the media landscape, but TV contracts would, would flow to those schools, right? And, and more recruits would come. And you don't even really have to look at, like football, it would take a lot of money, but it, it, 10 athletes could change the basketball landscape. Like, like just imagine if Dwayne Wade's son and LeBron James' son went to the same HBCU. Like that would be, that could immediately cause a radical shift. And I think it's something that can be looked at, even if it's theoretical, right? But a few athletes could change the direction of sports. You know, when you, we see it when, you know, a couple guys sign with, for instance, uh, a Duke, and then all of a sudden they have a long line, of successful college teams, and the same thing happens, you know, with a bunch of, of, of college basketball programs. It only takes one really superstar on a team. Two is, you know, it's a championship team with two top five star recruits could make a team into a championship team.
2: Goes back to tell you that thing about, about the hurt. How do you make? How do you hurt them? Let let's say the Texas C three top football players from Dallas go to Jackson state, Grambling and Alcorn state (laughs) instead of going to Texas. Now that hurt becomes palpable because one space where they're comfortable with black people is on the football field. And if you can't even get that, (laughs) now you really got a problem. Right. And those, those, those
0: teams, like the NFL is money driven. So they're still going to be drafted. Like if you have that talent, you're still going to be drafted into the NFL, but what it could do for HBCUs, for black economics, um, because that money, like, again, if, if, if those schools become powerhouses and they get television contracts, that's, that's hundreds of millions of dollars that could flow to not just those athletes, but the students at those colleges in general again I went to auburn and so I see how you know an athletic program can sh- change the economy and the and how it affects a school
1: right do you think that i mean you talked to her earlier about you know feeling uncomfortable and and we talked about how you know Jason mentioned Tyrese Halliburton and Jason is being very modest. Jason wrote this great piece that he interviewed Tyrese and other um, other athletes for about how we are not taught our history properly in schools um, and I know michael that you 've written and you 've talked about this a lot, and I was extremely lucky I had a, an African American History teacher, an African. Well, he was a a history teacher who was black um, in eighth grade, and that is the only reason that I learned things like Tulsa and Seneca Village growing up in New York and things like that. But like, how do we fix that when we when it seems like any? I mean, critical race theory is being so. Mischaracterized into what it actually is. And it's not something that you're teaching in elementary schools and all of that. But how do we actually fix that when any slight, when the whole textbook thing is a problem, when any slight attempt to correct or at least um, to to rectify the accuracy of what we're being taught is not only pushed back against for, for a political agenda, but when white people are feeling implicated themselves. They are feeling this set, this level of guilt to a point where they themselves are actually pushing back on this. So
0: first of all, I have to say that this is all speculation because so I was homeschooled until I was 12. Okay. And so most of the history that I learned from the beginning was taught at home. So it was only when my kids do you think that
1: means i'm sorry to cut you off do you think that means you were taught more accurately because yeah yeah
0: yeah Uh, you know in my book shameless plug coming out uh black af history Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that i talk about is that you know i read before the mayflower just pulling it off my bookshelf it wasn't like somebody taught me or and you know i read like uh uh Isaac Asimov's Mm. uh not Isaac Asimov but I read the the science fiction novel Soul of the Robot and then Mm. uh you know I thought well there's a sequel right beside it you know this W. B. Du Bois Soul of the Robot so I was like oh that's I mean Soul of Black Folks so I was like oh that must be the sequel so I read that and that's so that's kind of how I absorbed history but you know it was just maybe a couple of years ago when i realized oh see i didn't realize that people learn like george washington chopped down a cherry tree and the pilgrims and the mayflower and then they learn about slavery so once you teach them about these demigods who were who we call the founding fathers it's hard to deconstruct racism when everybody who you've made into great men who founded this country and built the foundation of this country, you've already created this myth, mythos about them and this mythology about them. And so, I think first of all, we just have to start from the beginning and say, look, and, and this is not saying that Washington and Jefferson aren't great men. You can say, hey, they were really smart and they created this whole new idea of how a country should be and how it should be run and they were slave owners and they kept black people locked up in the barn and like those two things aren't diametrically opposed it is the reality of how this country was founded right and it's, it's just like you know we teach that about everybody else except the white people right we teach how the Native Americans lived and survived and had an economy and governed themselves and lived off the land. And we kind of make them into villains too, right? We do that with every other people. We are the British allies, but we were initially fighting them for our freedom. Right. And so we can do if we can do it with the British and with the Native Americans and with everybody, the Japanese and everybody and the Germans who we are allied with now, why can't we do it with white people? Right? And but ultimately, and this is the thing that I'm writing about now. Like we don't, we always view these as racial issues when it's there, they aren't really racial issues, right? Because if you look at polling, if you look to talk to people like Hispanic Americans believe that kids should learn about slavery and and Muslims and black people and everybody else except white people. Right. So it is really kind of a white thing. right? It's not like black people want to be taught black stuff in school. It's like everybody thinks we should be just taught facts and white people say no. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's not a racial issue. It's a white issue. It's a, it's a problem that white people have with themselves. And the answer, just think about how insane this is, is that the answer is so that we won't make them feel bad. We'll just lie to them. Mm. Right. We'll just teach, teach them the opposite of facts. And it's a, it's an insane idea if you talk about because you can't talk about american history if you don't talk about slavery if you don't talk about who owned the slaves if you don't talk about how the slaves got here if you don't talk about the and and you can't talk about any of that without explaining that yeah there was a small minority of white people who owned slaves and Everybody else, that culture of violence, that culture of fugitive slave chasing, that was enforced by the larger white population. It wasn't just the people who owned the human property that enforced slavery. You know, there's a a great, uh, I uh, great chapter in my book. I don't want to say great, but there's an interesting chapter in my book about uh, you know one of the first you know, places where slavery existed in America on James Island in South Carolina. and was a small little island. And I, I po- proposed that it is really the capital of black America. But on this island, there were fifteen hundred slaves and two hundred white people. And when you think about that, right, mm-hmm. when you think about that's how America was in the South. You know, in in places like South Carolina, South Carolina was a majority black state until the 1940s. Mississippi, you know, Louisiana, those were majority non-white states until, you know, kind of recently when you look at the scope of American history. And you can't talk about why these things happen without talking about how the larger culture of America enforced this subjugation, right, and this this the econ economy that built America into a global superpower because of that free labor.
2: Reminds me of that Richard Pryor line: "Tell me some more of those lies and make me feel good. Like let's ignore the truth. <laughs> let's just keep feeding what what's going to make me feel." okay, well, what's going on? And do you see any path around that? I mean, you know we talk about, can- I think we look at the uh, critical race theory discussion. I tie a lot of- to the cancel culture because it's easy to say, let's not talk about it because it's racist. And nobody wants to be labeled a racist. And like you said, also, everyone has two sides. You can do a great thing for the country and still have done bad things. <laughs> away from that. How do we just kind of reconcile all of that to where we can learn things and realize, you know what, this is this is actual truth and not feel like, okay, now that we've learned this truth, let's now invoke the cancel part of it. I know you've written about cancel culture as well. Just the I think that cancel thing keeps a lot of people from saying what they want to say or expressing themselves in these areas.
0: Well, you know what? One of the interesting ways that I think we can do it is when you look at sports, right? Like how does, like, is there a coach who just tells all of his players when they do something wrong? Oh, you, you mean you did it right. I don't want to make you feel bad by telling you, you missed that block or took Mm -hmm. a bad shot or, you know, or didn't have the right mechanics at that last at bat, right? They yell at them. They make them feel bad because telling someone what's wrong is the only way to improve them, right? So we can look at sports, right? And and then even better, when you look at how you become stronger, right? You have to lift weights. Like it hurts. It tires you out and it's not pleasant, but that's how you get better at doing things. That's how you get stronger. That's how you get faster is not just working, but working on your weaknesses. Well, we know this, the weakness of America is that there are some people in America who are oppressed, who are marginalized, and the way this whole country gets stronger is by working on those weaknesses one of the things that I always point out is that racism does not hurt black people as much as it hate hurts white people like in the immediacy, of course, right, being marginalized hurts you know, black people. But when you think about it, right, like when we talk about economics and, you know, white people or conservatives are always talking about we're giving too much of our money in social programs. Well, if you stop income disparities, right, then you won't have to give that money to those social programs. If you eliminate some of the disparities in education, then you wouldn't have to pour money into crime. You know, it's a it's an interesting thing about when you imagine crime and we know that it's a socioeconomic phenomenon. And I'm getting into the deep uh, you know, economic theory right now, but you know, sociologists and economists know that crime rises when there is a bad economy right and we're talking about like you know we'd like to say well the the protesters made the police bad and you see the rise in crime no nah, it's because like we had the biggest economic downfall in the history of america last summer and it reflected in the crime rate so we know crime is a economic construct right but people want to keep their stuff people don't want to but whose windows do you think those poor people are going to bust out if they don't have any money, they're going to bust out your window. So the best way to stop your windows from being busted out is to make sure there is economy. There is an, an economy that, that employs people, that people have education, that people don't attend unequal schools. And guess what happens when that happens? Right. Windows stop cracking. Right. And people start running up in your house and stealing your TV and you can play your PlayStation without having to lock it up because you focused on your community and not just yourself. And, and sports is a good, you know, a good analogy for that, right? Like you can have the best four offensive lineman in football. And if you got one week link, one guy who's 187 pounds guess who's going to give up a sack every time the quarterback drops back to pass it's that one so all you got to do is hey man we got to work on this one player and help him get to the level of the rest of our offensive line right if you got one weak cornerback who's that team opposing team going to target that one week so you got to make him better and that's what we got to do with society sports is a great analogy for that and that's how like and that's why we shouldn't focus on not making people feel bad we should if we're going to fix our weaknesses we have to point out a this is our weak link and in american society racism is one of our weakest links
1: right well, Michael, that is a great note to end on, I think. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we let you go, tell, tell us about the book, which I'm really excited about.
0: It's called Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America. And so it starts before 1619. And it is just the story of America from the perspective of Black people. So, you know, if you are an enslaved person in 18 18- 59, you really weren't concentrating on the presidential race between Mm -hmm. Lincoln and Douglas or the Lincoln-Douglas debates. You were concentrating on what was going on in your world. And so it looks at America through that perspective or from that perspective. And it kind of uncovers some of the interesting and funny stories that made us into the country that we are And I think it's a little bit it's funny and it's really an exercise in storytelling from a different perspective than what we're used to seeing.
1: Well, that is very exciting. We will all make sure to check it out. Michael, Harriet, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to Culture Calculus. I'm Kavitha Davidson for Jason Jones from The Athletic. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to give us a rating if you can as well. And make sure to tune in every Thursday. We'll have a different episode, a different guest, and a different topic at hand. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.